Welcome back to the podcast. We are continuing our Keep the Fires Burning series today, a study of the minor characters of the Bible. But before we jump into it, I want to let you guys know a little bit about the ministry here at Evidence for Faith. If you've been with us for a few weeks, um, you know that Evidence for Faith is much more than just this podcast. Uh, and we are 100% donor supported. And the reason for that is we wanted to uh, be able to offer as many of our resources and our events for free. Uh, Michael and I made a decision early on in this ministry that we never wanted to charge anyone to come hear the gospel. Uh, we also want to be flexible and be able to be sent wherever God needs us to go. Um, beyond the podcast, we actually go to uh, different churches, groups, schools uh, to speak and uh, share the good news with uh, anyone and everyone and help people dig deeper into their Bibles and get to know God more through science, history, and archaeology. So if you'd like to help support the, this broadcast and help support the missionary work we do beyond this, uh, you can become a donor today at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. Or you can scroll down a little bit and you'll see a link at the top of our description, which will also take you to our giving page and have instruction on how you can give securely online or send a check through the mail. If you've given before, we really appreciate your support. If you've been thinking about giving and supporting us, uh, the nice thing about donations is you can give as little or as much as you want. So we are looking for uh, ongoing supporters, so month-to-month -month supporters or quarterly uh, donors. And we are also looking for one-time donations to help cover uh, those expenses that are not currently covered by monthly donors. So as I said, you can check out the link in the description or go to evansforfaith.org slash give. So with that, I'm going to let Michael take it away today with our Keep the Fires Burning study. And today we get to meet Gehazi. Hi, and welcome to Evidence for Faith. It's your host, Michael Lane. I'm so glad you're joining me today in our continuation of our series called Keep the Fires Burning. Now, these are lessons of minor Bible characters, lesser-known Bible characters um, in the Bible, but major lessons that they teach us. We can glean a lot of information from these apparently sometimes thought of insignificant characters. And today, we're going to be looking at, in this lesson, a character by the name of Gehazi. Gehazi, who was a servant of the prophet Elisha. And what we can learn about this is um, when priorities become a problem, because that was what Gehazi can teach us. The story is both in 2 Kings 4 and 2 King, or chapter 5, but we'll read through different sections of it. But to begin with, let me start off by telling you a story that sort of relates to this. Now, as many of you know, I used to be a teacher, and I once had an interesting student who was enrolled in my seventh grade science class. At the beginning of that school year, he came to me and said that he didn't want to do any homework. None. Instead, he said he wanted to do extra credit. When I questioned him about the necessity of doing assigned work over unassigned work, he simply replied that his dad would support his decision. Well, I, I called home and asked the father to come and see me at his earliest convenience and so we could talk about his son's work. A few days later, the father came in after school and sat down across from me with his son at a table. He asked me what this was all about. I told him that his son had told me that he would not do any homework this year in my class and would only do extra credit. I also informed him that his son was living up to his promise. Uh, he hadn't turned in one assignment. He hadn't done anything I re requested in class. So I, I told his father I really needed his help 
the father's help in seeing that his son would do the work and not to focus on extra credit for the analysis of his learning. Now, I noticed that the father became very uneasy at this point, and he told me that he had had this talk with his son and that the two of them had come up with this plan. I was puzzled. He described himself as getting this far in life without having to understand science, and if he could do it and succeed, his son could too. In short, he told me that what I was trying to teach his son was utterly worthless and a waste of his son's time and efforts. I remember him then leaning back in his chair as he studied my face to see if his cutting remarks had made the impact on me that he had hoped for. Oh, I I sat there literally stunned. I felt that not only my profession had been violated by this man and his son, but myself too. Then a wicked grin developed on this man's face, and he turned his head and winked at his son, who was also now grinning. Well, I was determined not to let this man or his son feel any sort of victory here. I thought quickly and asked him, what do you do for a living? Now, he obviously wasn't expecting that question, because he slumped a little in his chair as he described his low-skilled job at a factory. But he added at the end of his description that science is not something that he uses in his job or even in his life. I asked him if he was happy with his choice of career. Do you really love your job? And he admitted to me that, no, he was not happy. But then he added, soon I won't have to work there. Surprised, I asked him why, and his response absolutely floored me. He said that in a few years, his son would be out of school and would be playing in the NBA, making millions, playing basketball. He could then retire and live off his son's earnings. Yes, he's actually saying this. He said, um, he said this, and his son is sitting there just beaming a smile as big as a watermelon. He said that the only subject in this school that could help his son would be in gym class when they played basketball. And he defiantly then stated the important thing in my son's education at this school is to get that orange ball in that hoop. Wow. Now you might understand why I remember the story so well, because it was years ago. I, have to, I now saw that I had to educate two individuals who did not want to learn. Wow. I tried to assure him that many parents and students have had such dreams and expectations across the country to, to play in the NBA, but very, very, very few people ever make it. I asked, I asked him then what he, I, he thought his son would do if he didn't make it to the NBA. What could he fall back on? Get what he replied. He says, I will make it happen. I'll see to it. Well... Unfortunately for this family, the boy never made it to the NBA. No, he wasn't even the star player on the team we had at the school, to be honest. He wasn't. Uh, He struggled all through school that year because his dad had driven him with the wrong priorities in life. Hmm. You see, having the wrong priorities in life can get a person into real trouble, and this includes your relationship with God. We're going to examine this lesser-known character, uh, Gehazi, um, and see what he can teach us about the consequence of getting our priorities messed up and out of sequence 
with, with God. As I said, his name is Gehazi. He is the, the, um, the servant of the great prophet Elisha. Now, when we first come upon Gehazi in Scripture, he's already accompanying the prophet in, in 2 Kings chapter 4. And in verses 12 and 14, we start to see a little bit about him. And Elijah, they're, they're um, working there with a woman um, who's asked Elisha for help and, and everything, who's been taking care of Elisha. And Elisha asks Gehazi for input on how to hand, uh, honor this family that's been helping them. In 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 14, we read, And he said, What's to be done for her? Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son, and her husband's old. Now, right here, Gehazi seems to really have a knack for giving this generous family a tremendous gift. You see, in ancient Jewish culture, to be childless indicates that the mother must not be in good standing with the Lord. So she would have been looked down upon and made fun of by all the neighbors. It was the lowest disgrace an honorable woman could have. What I'm really impressed with is that Gehazi doesn't even consider a monetary reward. For this family has been helping them. No, he goes to her heart and her soul for the greatest honor she could hope for. And we see by her response that she had given up this hope and dream because of the age. So, hey, three cheers for Gehazi and his suggestion. Wow, this is awesome. And obviously the Lord wanted to grant this and to do this, it was in God's will. So it happened, and they had a son. Now, we read some more verses and stuff, but we next read about Gehazi, um, again, helping this family and serving his master, Elisha. The son who Gehazi suggested would make a wonderful reward for the faithfulness of the family has suddenly died. The mother is absolutely heartbroken and goes off herself to find Elisha. When she approaches the two, Gehazi sees her in the distance, far off. Elisha sends him to her to talk to her at the distance. He doesn't go himself. He sends Gehazi to find out what the trouble's all about. Well, she doesn't tell Gehazi. She doesn't confide in him, doesn't give him an answer, and keeps um, moving to finally come to the feet and falls at the feet of Elisha. Now we start to see a different Gehazi because he pushes her aside. We pick this up, 2 Kings 4.27. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone, for she's in bitter distress. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. She did not tell Gehazi her problem. She deceived him. She went right past him. Oh, all's well. Nothing's wrong. His response now was to send her away because he did not, um, he did not realize that her heart was absolutely broken. And she was in great distress. And she didn't confide in him. Fortunately for her, Elijah was indifferent to his servant and told him, leave her alone. Elisha has what we would call people skills. He's catching the problem with the woman, doesn't understand what's happened, but he can relate with people and sense how to work with them. Gehazi is obviously not possessing these skills. Probably it was his pride was likely damaged, and he wanted nothing to do with her since she, she just blew him off. 
Well, when she begins to tell Elijah the catastrophe, Elisha immediately hands his staff to his youthful servant Gehazi, whose heart was hardened, and sends him off running to heal the boy. Now, the mother had not told him that her son was dead, and Elisha just assumed that the boy was seriously ill. That's how the story goes. So before getting the whole story and getting all the truth, Elisha sends Gehazi to go heal the boy with his staff. We pick this up, 2 Kings 4.29. And he said to Gehazi, tie up your garment, take my staff in your hand, and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. If anyone greets you, do not reply. Lay my staff on the face of the child. So Gehazi goes. Nothing happens. Why? The boy is dead. Now, let's stop for a second and look at the geography of this story. Uh, and also get an idea of how time is elapsing. The family, the family, this woman and stuff, lived in Shunem, and Elisha was over on Mount Carmel. Now, the distance between them is almost 30 miles. Now, in a car, that's, you know, less than a half an hour's drive today. But in those days, over dirt roads, walking or even riding a donkey would mean that he's probably been dead a couple of days now. I mean, this boy is dead. By the time he died, she comes to him, and he sends, and they, they go back over to this 30 miles away. There's a couple of days are going to pass in here. So Gehazi, when he sees nothing happens, he returns to Elisha and the woman who are en route to the home. Nothing happens. When they arrive, now, get what happens. Elisha goes into the room with the dead child alone. Gehazi, the servant, and the family are now sitting outside wondering what's going to happen. Just think about this for a minute. I can't help but wonder what Gehazi had going on in his mind at this point. Here he had tried to dismiss this woman because she would not confide in him about what had happened. And then he runs with all this might to reach this child first, only to find out that after he followed the instructions, it did nothing. He was still dead. Did he sit there wondering about his own faith? Hmm. Did he wonder why he was shut out of the room and Elisha went in alone? Did he feel embarrassed about this, that he's not in the room with his master? We're not told any of this. We can just speculate. In any case, The boy is raised back to life, and Elisha then shouts for Gehazi to come. And in 2 Kings 4.36, he summoned Gehazi. Note it says Gehazi, not the mother. He summoned Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. Now this is interesting. Notice what takes place here. Just don't read through your Bible. Look for the who, what, when, where, whys, and hows. You're going to see some things. Gehazi was the first one after Elijah to see the son alive. And he, not Elisha, he gets the honor of presenting the living child back to her. The awkward setting in the waiting room was now gone, and he, no doubt, Uh, Gehazi is relieved now to be at least a part of this miracle because he gets to present the son. Well, after this happens, a few more events take place in Scripture and stuff, and then we come to another episode um, after some time. 
And during these t- this, uh, this elapse of times, the Bible tells us that Gehazi, who's Elisha's uh, servants, gets to see his master perform some absolutely amazing miracles. So that's been going on. We don't hear anything really about Gehazi, but Elisha is doing tremendous miracles. Then we come to another part of the story. In chapter 5, we read about a guy named Naaman, who is the commander of the Syrian army, who comes to Elisha's door seeking healing from his disease of leprosy. The Syrians were the enemies of the Israelites. It's the bad guys. They've invaded the land. They've taken away captives as slaves, even children. As the story goes, when God heals Naaman, which he does, He rides back to Elisha and tries to give him a substantial reward in payment for his healing. He's trying to make an offering to God for healing him. Now, since God did the healing, and this is so important, catch this now. God did the healing by grace alone, not for any monetary or any other means of being paid. Because of this, Elisha flatly refuses any monetary reward. But Gehazi's standing there, and he's watching, and as we're going to see, he's coveting. When Naaman finally realizes that Elisha is not going to take any of the prizes, he departs back for his own company, to his own country, with his, his wealth. Now, let's pick up the story in the Bible. This is in 2 Kings 5. We're at verse 20, going to read through 24. See what happens here. Naaman has just left. And we read, And Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, now he's talking to himself, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I'll run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from his chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And Gehazi says, All is well. My master has sent me to to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two festal garments. And Naaman said, Oh, please, Uh, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two festal garments. And he laid them on two servants, and they carried them before Gehazi. When he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house. Then he sent the men away, and they departed. What's happened? Well, Gehazi has got his priorities really mixed up. Let's examine what his life, first of all, has been like thus far, up to this point. Before this sin, what has his life been like? First of all, he's been chosen to be a servant of the prophet Elisha. Now, right there, that is quite an honor in itself, to follow this powerful man of God. Second, he has been witness to some absolutely remarkable miracles and events to strengthen his faith in God. A third thing, he has been involved in a dynamic ministry that has seen people get their lives back on track with God. Wow. Fourth, 
he himself has been a tool in the hands of God in this ministry. He's actually helped perform miracles. God has used Gehazi to do miracles too. Fifth, he's been present to some of the most fantastic teaching from a man of God. Not many people get to follow a major prophet around, learning from him firsthand. And a sixth thing that we can see about him, he has had the privilege of serving God on the mission field. Now, isn't it interesting, all those six things there that Gehazi has experienced? And I bet most of you who are listening can probably identify with a couple of those, working in ministry, maybe going on the mission field or whatever. Yeah. But after all of this, after all of these things, Gehazi experiences a change in his life. His sinful flesh has taken over. To put it very simply, that's it. He just didn't steal and lied. But because his focus was off God and now on himself, he made five, count them, five sinful choices. First, he coveted the wealth that was presented to Elisha. It wasn't his to have, but his human nature overcame his desire to do God's will. Money got him. Second, he flatly, flatly lied to Naaman for needs that really did not even exist. He distorted the truth for his own gain. Third, he exploited a new convert on the pretext of a religious nature. This, my friends, is a very, very serious sin. To use a new convert in an unholy act while saying that you're serving God, that is a powerful sin. Fourth, he flatly lies to Elisha about being gone and what he did. This is amazing, considering how close Elisha was to God. I wonder how he even thought he could fool Elisha, but he tries. And fifth, fifth, he destroyed the image of God healing by grace alone. That's what Naaman learned from this, that at least that's what he, was, he thought he had learned at the beginning, that God healed him by grace alone. He didn't have to pay for it. This is probably the most serious sin of Gehazi. Naaman now leaves believing that God grants grace to people who turn to him um, and pay for something. But Gehazi changed the real message that God just grants grace to people who turn to him. Now, by now, the truth comes out, and when he returns to Elisha after hiding his stash, look what happens. And this is in verses 25 through 27. He went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. But he said, did not my heart go when the man turned from the chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards, vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. So he went out from the presence a leper like snow. Why do we even think we can get away with sin? We know that God is present and is watching, but it's like we say to ourselves, well, I, while we're sinning, I know I can do this 
without anyone but God seeing me because I know he won't say a word to anyone. <laughs> I know we, we do this. We do this. I myself have done this. We, we intentionally mix up our priorities and try to deceive ourselves, only to later find out that our sins will have an impact on our lives. We might get away with our sin for a moment, but such hidden sins can eat away at our souls, driving us further away from God. We may put on a godly show to the people around us, but deep inside we're being eaten away as from a worm that wants to devour our soul in our relationship with God. Gehazi thought he got away with the sin. But as sin usually does, it becomes public. Maybe not right away, but it does become public sometime. In the meantime, it may mess up our lives so much that we ourselves are finally stressed to confess what we do for some alleviation. But I have yet to find a sin that has benefited a person for a long haul. You may be sitting there right now, beloved, thinking that you have some sin that you've done that's really rewarded you, but believe me, it will not reward you. It's going to bring you trouble. Sometime it's going to come out. It's going to bring you a despair or something possibly even worse. Gehazi walked away with a consequence that would inflict him for the rest of his life. No longer could, do you understand this? No longer could he be involved in ministry because he's a leper, he's unclean. He could no longer live with his in his home. He could no longer be with his family. He could no longer be with his friends. He's an outcast. So there are at least four things, four major lessons we can learn from Gehazi. First, keep your devotional times going with God. Meet and pray daily to keep your relationship strong and healthy. Communication is so important in a healthy relationship. We hear this all the time, particularly dealing with marriage, and it is true in our relationships with people. So listen to God by reading his 66 love letters that he sent you. Speak to him often in prayer, telling him what's on your mind. Not making a shopping list, just communicating as one best friend does to another. A second thing we can learn. While you're praying, don't forget to ask for help and protection from committing sins. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, remember, he said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, Matthew 6, 13. We need to pray daily. Try and get up in the morning with some of my first prayers out of my mouth. Lord, help me not to fall into temptation and to sin today. Third thing we can learn from him. Some Gehazi had for a bit, but then he sort of lost it. Have a friend to hold you accountable. You cannot hold yourself accountable. You need to find a close friend who you can confide with and help hold you close to God. Someone who you can really even tell the, your struggles with, and they'll keep it confidential and maybe even give you good counsel, or at least keep you accountable to it. And a fourth thing, beloved, hold tight to your relationship with God. If Gehazi, get this now, if Gehazi could be led astray after witnessing all the things that he had seen in this ministry with Elisha, we too can be led astray. The late Reverend Billy Graham often challenged young people and adults by saying, he would say this at the end of many of his crusades. What will you be like as a Christian 10 years from now? 
Many will be walking with Christ and serving him in various capacities around the world, but for others there will be a tragedy because 10 years from now they will have lost their burning zeal and love for Christ. Not necessarily because they wanted to or because they set their hearts in rebellion against God's will, but because they set their life by the world's agenda. In his commentary, The Gospel of Luke, William Barclay tells a very interesting story. I'll just read it. It is possible to be a follower of Jesus without being a disciple, to be a camp follower without being a soldier of the king, to be a hanger-on in some great work without pulling one's weight. Once, someone was talking to a great scholar about a young man. He said, so-and-so tells me that he was one of your students. The teacher answered devastatingly, he may have attended my lectures, but he was not one of my students. There is a world of difference between attending lectures and being a student. It is one of the supreme handicaps of the church that in the church there are so many distant followers of Jesus and so few real disciples. Father God, we thank you for this lesson and what we can learn from this lesser character. And I just pray that we take these things and apply the lessons of this into our lives so that we will always be serving you, walking close with you, and not falling into the temptations of this world, which are mighty and all around us. So please protect us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in, and thank you to our donors who make this program possible. Evidence for Faith is a 501c3 nonprofit ministry based in the USA. You can support this broadcast by donating online using the links in the description. And don't forget to leave us a comment, a review, likes, and shares to feed the algorithm and help others find this content. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.